Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Looper. And that was quite the intro. I was really at it it here today. Uh, If you want to be part of the program, then you can give me a call on either the listener hotline, the number 303-832-0217. You have all the contact links uh, that you could ever want for me. Uh, right there at the description of this fine show, and you can find that at uh, in there. And it's, there's the uh, driving you crazy podcast at gmail.com. There's my Twitter at Denver Seven Traffic, Denver Traffic, or uh, uh, Jason Liber Traffic Guy on Facebook. So I am out there. You just search uh, J A Y S O N L U B E R, and boom, you'll find more information than you ever ever wanted about me. A couple of weeks ago, I went out to lovely Golden, Colorado. It's one of my favorite spots along the eastern half of Colorado, uh, one of the metro cities in Metro Denver. And yes, it is the home of the Coors Brewery. And yes, I have toured it many times in the past. The tour, by the way, used to be fantastic. It was great um, a long time ago. They actually wanted to show you how they made the beer. It was really cool. Um, and then in recent years, I, I guess I haven't been out in the last couple of years, but, uh, well, the last time I did go, it, it had, the, the tour had changed. Um, but it was still, it, you know, the, the best part is at the end where they have the tasting room. Um, I think that's where most people want to hang out. Uh, anyway, I went out to Golden to co- co- cover the uh, story of the Colorado School of Mines launching a fleet of fully autonomous electric shuttle buses that are now roaming around their campus. I believe it is, to date, the largest deployment of these types of vehicles in the entire country, and so I thought it was a good time to talk autonomy. So to talk about it, I invited Sherrod Argawal. He is Senior Vice President for North America for the company called Easy Mile. And Easy Mile is one of the partners of this uh, shuttle deal, and they are the ones who uh, put these autonomous buses in action and deployed them out there in Golden. So it should be an interesting conversation about how big of a step this really is in the evolution of the vehicle automation and uh, where we are now with uh, autonomous vehicles and where we're going from here, because you're going to take little steps uh, to go to full autonomy, and, and maybe this is one of those steps. So I'll have that uh, conversation with him in just a couple of minutes. Uh, this past week, I went out to the Denver Broncos headquarters to do a stakeout. <laughs> yeah, uh, not like in the movies where the cops are sitting in an old Crown Victoria drinking coffee from a styrofoam cup, waiting for the bad guys to show up so they can tail them. Um, well, I, mean, I guess it was kind of that. <laughs> I went out on this stakeout because I wanted to watch the team leave the facility, uh, and as they get escorted from the team facility to the airport for an away football game, and they get escorted by the Colorado State Patrol. And I was doing all of this because I received a complaint email to the Driving You Crazy inbox from Ron, who writes, What's driving you crazy? I was driving across Broncos Parkway at Chambers Road when the State Patrol blocked off the intersection for several minutes while they were escorting the Denver Broncos in eight buses speeding along Chambers. There were several officers in cars and on motorcycles blocking intersections, darting in and out of buses, and interfering with traffic flow. First, who paid the bill on this? Does that include the use of wear and tear of taxpayer vehicles? What gives them the right to block traffic like this and run red lights? Above all, it created a dangerous situation. I would appreciate some answers. (laughs) Uh, I think that's kind of how Ron would be uh, describing the question if he was actually telling me about it instead of just writing to me about it. Well, since uh, I'm all about answers, Ron, uh, here's your answer. When when you go or I go to the airport, the regular airport, we have to go through TSA security screenings. The process is a little different for uh, sports teams, including the Denver Broncos, when they go on the road for a road game. Now imagine what it would be like to screen all the equipment, the coaches, the players, the personnel that travels with the team to all these road games. So to make the process easier, the team does not get screened out at the airport. They bring the TSA to them. Lori Dankers, she is with the TSA here locally, and she tells me they have TSA officers go to the Broncos headquarters in Arapahoe County, south of Denver, 
and they conduct the same screening for the team personnel they would give you and me at the airport. She says the screening process can take place in a variety of locations per TSA requirements and regulations. She said the methods vary, but can include the use of technology, physical search, or other methods to screen travelers and personal property. What I understand is the screenings are are, are not quite as rigorous as uh, what you and I uh, get at the airport, where you have to take the shoes off, and you have to take your belt off, and you have to go through that thing where you lift up your hands and they're seeing your everything. Uh, and then going, having all your stuff up on the conveyor belt, going through the x-ray machine. It's not like that. It's a lot less rigorous. Um, that is for sure. I, I can tell you that. Uh, from where I was watching, I could not see that happening. It appeared that the team was screened in the weight room, and then they used the back door of the weight room to get into this area where they had uh, these eight team buses all staged out with the doors open, and so the uh, players, the personnel, everybody, the coaches, they would coming out of this back door and then going right to the buses. And so that's that's what I was watching. And, and most major uh, sports teams, they use private charters, and they, and they have for many years. Now, the TSA uh, uh, tells me, officially, the charter airline hired the t- by the team has that responsibility of providing security screening that's supposed to adhere to the TSA security standards. Now, Megan Boyle, she is the communications strategist for the Denver Broncos. She's one of the people in their uh, media relations department. She told me this, quote, The safe, efficient, and environmentally responsible way to transport the team to the airport is commonplace in the NFL and throughout professional sports and has been standard procedure for decades, unquote. I, I don't think I read that as... Megan would have said it. Uh, here's the reason for the state patrol, though, according to the team and to the TSA, and why they need to be there. Now, the state patrol escort, they say, is to comply with the federal requirement that after a TSA screening happens, a secure perimeter is maintained, and that includes when the screening is conducted away from an airport. So in order to comply with this mandate, the Denver Broncos pay the Colorado State Patrol to escort the personnel buses, all eight of them, to the airport for these road games. Typically, their detail includes four troopers in marked Colorado State Patrol cars and one trooper on a CSP motorcycle. Now, the trooper's time is paid by the team. They also charge for the use of the vehicles, which includes wear and tear. Now, Megan Boyle with the Broncos wouldn't tell me how much the team pays for the State Patrol time and equipment, nor for the cost of the added security screening at the team headquarters, I have heard that it can cost anywhere from $4,000 to $5,000 for that security screening. I've also heard that there have been times, maybe in the past, of in-kind donations. In other words, the team will donate stuff like signed footballs or jerseys or things to the state patrol in lieu of cash payment. I don't know what the state patrol would do that if it just goes to the people who are working. Because these these, uh, troopers are working technically like overtime. They're not working on... Uh, I don't. They're not working on the, the state patrol clock, so it's they they, they do uh, private security. The Denver Police Department does for the Denver Broncos games and and other games uh, for the sports teams, Rockies games, Nuggets, all that stuff here in Metro Denver. I'm sure it's the same way in all the cities around the country. So these guys will work extra, not through the department, but through the sports teams and get uh, extra money. And, and usually it's pretty good money uh, for uh, being security for the sports teams. But I can't confirm that there's been in-kind donations, but uh, that's that's at least what I've heard. Um, and actually, when I asked the Megan uh, about the question about cost, uh, she really wasn't nice when I asked her that question, replying back to me. Um, she said she wanted to keep that internal. Now, the way this rolling closure works, because I watched it, so I know how it works, is that there, there's a lead trooper, and that lead trooper pulled out from the Bronco facility out of the parking lot to block all southbound traffic on this one road called Potomac Street. Then the rest of the troopers race over to the first intersection there at Bronco's Parkway. They hold the traffic in all four directions, and then here comes the eight team buses making that right turn to head south on Potomac. 
And these buses roll through the intersection that are held by the troopers, even if they would have had a red light. And after the last bus gets on the road, the first trooper that was blocking traffic, he jumps back into his car, speeds down the road, lights on so he can catch up to the motorcade. Now, that motorcade is allowed to continue past any red light on their way down to our toll road, E-470. The buses and the patrol continue south, now along Chambers Avenue, again blocking all cross traffic along the way. So they make that turn onto northbound E-470 heading for the Denver International Airport. Now, once they're on the tollway, the buses moved over to the left lane, while three of the five troopers with lights on sped up to the next interchange entrance ramp. They did that so they could hold traffic briefly from entering the, the, the tollway. So if you were on a ramp at uh, the next road up, they, they stopped all traffic, blocked traffic from getting on the highway at the same time as the buses were passing by. Then there were two other troopers that were remaining behind, also with their lights on. One of the troopers was right behind the last bus. The other one was positioned behind the entire motorcade, but positioned in a way to slow down any and all drivers who might think it would be a good idea to pass the motorcade. (laughs) Now, I watched as that last trooper mostly stayed in the middle lane, but that trooper would drift to the left or to the right if, if somebody attempted to pass the motorcade. This Jeep that was in front of me did try to get up there, and, and the trooper just started slowing down, got right in front of the, the Jeep driver and started slowing down in order to make the driver uh, you know, not, not pass the motorcade. Now, then the buses, so they, they do this all the way up to Peña Boulevard, which is the road that goes out to Denver International Airport, continue towards the terminal, but they exit early at this road to head to Signature Flight Support, which is a... A private terminal, if you will, right there is part of the airport, but not at the main terminal. So that's where the Broncos private aircraft, charter aircraft, was waiting for them. And then all the team uh, members, they get off the bus, they go through their uh, little uh, deal there, and then they get on the plane and off they go. Now, uh, if Bob Eller, he, he's with the Baltimore Ravens. He's senior vice president of operations. And a while back, he told the Bleacher Report that all NFL teams go through a similar screening at the stadium after an away game. And I've heard the same thing from team members, Bronco team members uh, and former players. And that after the game, they all get screened at the stadium before they get on the buses. And then they are escorted again by police over to the aircraft. And all the airlines, they hire these TSA screeners to come to the stadium, do that screening and then send the players on the buses out to the airport. Now, the TSA told me that people traveling with the Broncos, because I asked them this specific question, if they're subject to the same liquid quantity restrictions that we are, so we can't bring a bottle of water through security, right? You have to have an empty bottle, and then it's fine, and then you fill it up like I do on the other side, because it's ridiculous to pay $4 for a bottle of water. So I asked if they have the same quantity restrictions, the 3 ounces or the 100 milliliters, right? Just like you and me. Now, the TSA said the federal face man, uh, that, that, that rule, the 311 rule, applies, as does the federal, ma- ma- uh, the federal face mask requirement, where everybody's supposed to wear a mask. Even so, I saw no masks on any of the players or the coaches or the staff as they got on the bus. I, and I couldn't see inside the bus. The buses have that uh, dark tint to the window, so I couldn't really see if anybody was wearing masks in the bus, uh, but they were supposed to, and I, and I didn't really see that happen. It, it didn't seem like they had one handy either, like in their hand as they were going to put it on as they got on the bus. I've also talked to a couple of former players in the past few days about this story, and they tell me the screening is definitely not what you would get at the airport, and that any drink is allowed on the bus and the flight, and it's pretty much whatever you want to do. Uh, within some limits. Uh, so it, it's it's not the same as you and me going through TSA security at the airport. Not even close. Um, I, and even this, after the players, after two of the different players came out of the weight room, either they were staff members or players. I think maybe they're staff members. Anyway, I saw twice someone come out of the weight room, presumably after being screened, go over to their car, which is right there in the parking lot, right by the buses, Go in their car, get and then come back out to the to the bus and get on the bus. 
technically not allowed, but again, I think mainly because this is a charter flight, there is more of a relaxed level of screening and security, and they're probably not too worried about somebody sneaking a shoe bomb or underwear bomb on a uh, Broncos charter flight heading to the next team. I also talked to a guy who works as a photographer for the Denver Nuggets and for the NBA. He says they do security screenings for them actually at the airport at Signature Flight Support. Since there there aren't any buses, it's not like they meet over there at the arena and then get bussed over to the airport. They basically all show up there at their own time. They go through that little security screening at uh, Signature and then they get on the team plane. Um, more relaxed, similarly, as, as, as he told me. Um, more show, he said, than anything. So, again, nothing like you and I would experience just on our regular flights uh, at the airport. And, and you know what? As I've been talking to, about this story to other people, there, are, there have been two distinct sides to the story. Those uh, fans and former players and, and people uh, pro-team who say, stop picking on the team, uh, and, and, <laughs> and you're going to ruin it for all of us. And then there's there's the other side who are not really fans and say that these guys are getting special treatment. Yeah, they are getting special treatment, but you know uh, uh, that's the way our society works now. And so don't shoot the messenger. It's just kind of what it is. Anyway, I thought it was an interesting uh, story that Ron asked me, and he wanted answers. And there you go. You have your answers. Now I've talked a lot on this show about the future of autonomous vehicles, and a couple of weeks ago I went out to Golden. Colorado, as I said, yeah, the home of Coors Brewery, to cover the launch of the largest autonomous electric fleet of shuttle buses in the United States that will be roaming around the Colorado School of Mines. These shuttles, they're pretty small. They seat only six, but there's room for a couple more people standing up and, and, and holding on. They're also pretty slow with a top speed of just 12 miles an hour. They can go faster and they can let people stand up. And right now, there's there's a guy. They make you sit in one of the seats and actually wear a seatbelt. And there's some uh, safety ambassador that makes people do that and also wear the mask because uh, it's public transporta- transportation, technically. Um, and so there, he's ta- basically taking up any of the, the room that somebody would be able to stand on, on this thing. Now, I was, te- I was talking to several people out there at that story about the future of autonomy and autonomous vehicles. And one of the many people I met while, while I was out there in Golden was Sherrod Argawal. Sherrod is the North American Senior Vice President for the company Easy Mile. Easy Mile is working to support the rapid deployment of low-speed shared autonomous vehicles. Sherrod, welcome so much to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. It's great to meet you last week. Yeah, it was. It was nice talking uh, transportation, and and I, I have a great <laughs> many questions for you here. And so uh, well, let's just get into it right now. But before we get into really the autonomous vehicles and, and the future of self-driving, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? How'd you get interested in autonomous technology? I've always been in transportation, different aspects of it between uh, limos and motor coaches. And my last Boat for Easy Mile was actually at First Transit, and we were working in public transportation. And public transportation has just a lot of opportunities for disruption and new mobility, and autonomy being one of them. And I was actually introduced to Easy Mile through my role there about how would we be able to, to transition the future of public transit. And Easy Mile was one of the few companies really targeting that aspect of autonomy versus the, the retail or door-to-door. So it was a really interesting opportunity to try to really build uh, the market and the technology in that space. Were you always as a kid even, or growing up and getting into college interested in transportation? Was it something you just gravitated to? I'd say I gravitated towards it. Um, really more in my twenties. I saw some opportunities in what uh, mobility was, was going to be. And it was great, great timing because it became much more popular <laughs> in the, in the late uh, 2010s. And they become a much with that invention of the apps and autonomous vehicles, there's just been so much disruption happening. Uh, it was a really good time to be in transportation. So tell me about Easy Mile. What is the goal of the company, and what are you doing out there at the uh, place out near the uh, airport? So the goal, we are a driverless technology company. So our goal is software development on multiple different platforms, it really across two pillars right now. One is the people movement, and the other one is goods transportation. Uh, so our, our target is to be really in this kind of sweet spot of commercial driverless, where we're really more focused on supporting public transit, factories, airports versus a, a door-to-door service. So it's a different 
type of technology, but one we think is much uh, very achievable in the next couple of years. Uh, in, in Golden, it's a great opportunity for us to showcase our People Mover, which is our Easy 10, uh, in collaboration with Minds in the City of Golden and the Colorado Smart Cities Alliance, to really develop guidelines for the future for other cities and states to how AVs should be deployed. There's a lot of complexity when it comes to deploying AVs. The technology is only part of it. Um, just understanding how it'll interact with other road users and regulations and how kind of infrastructure is required. We really wanted to have this project to develop those right guidelines and have workshops to help other cities be ready for AVs, which I think is in reality, not just us, but in the next two years, in 2023, 24, you're going to see many more uh, deployments out there. So our, our goal is to get people ready for that. I am speaking with Sherrod Agarwal, Senior Vice President, North America for the company Easy Mile. As we were talking out there and as I was covering the story, this is just the first deployment. You're also talking about putting them down in the Denver Tech Center, which is on the south side of Metro Denver, as well as down in Colorado Springs. So this is just the first of several deployments just in Colorado. And I'm sure you're looking at doing this in other states, other places around the country. Well, actually, for this particular deployment, uh, we are focused only on Colorado. Um, we are going to be having a new product coming out in 2023, which is what we call the Easy Zeus, uh, which is a standard shuttle bus that you see in uh, other markets or in, in the airports or on, on university campuses. So that's really our really our you know, business focus is to have more of those rolling out in 23, 24. But this particular project, we're really focused on only Colorado. So uh, home home base and supportive state. So we thought that was the right right direction to go in. Now, we, we know there are five levels of self-driving. Well, I may I guess you can call it six <laughs> if you count level zero, no automation. Um, what level of autonomy are these shuttles? So we fall right in the category between three and four. So the vehicle is designed to run fully driverless. So if you were to put it into certain environments, we would run with no safety operator on board. Uh, in a particular environment at the mines, we do have a safety operator on board, a student operator, actually, um, for certain different uh, interactions, uh, maybe a few intersections or uh, just to, to support some of the other function of technology. So we're kind of right in that in between the three and four based on the, the firm definition on autonomy. But don't your uh, vehicles plan on going to level four or could they even go to level five? And how soon could that happen? Are you working on that technology? Yeah, we are level four today in certain environments, and we're going to be doing a project in a month where it's going to be fully driverless on a, a business campus with, with no safety driver. So I'd say we're kind of already into the into the level four side in, in certain environments. Level five is not in the roadmap. Uh, anywhere, anytime is quite a challenge or quite a different, in, in reality, maybe not necessary for our technology because we are doing fixed routes in more pre-planned areas. So having uh, you know, entire factory or entire even university mapped is not a huge feat. So it, we, we wouldn't, we're not even looking to move into the level five. Level four will be the top for us. So what's the trickiest part of developing autonomy? I, I ask because when I drive down the highway at, at let's say, 60 miles an hour, or even happened this morning driving uh, on the way to work, I can I could see that little piece of rubber that's on the road. And, and because of my experience, I, I knew it was just a chunk of, of truck tire that was laying there. All I needed to do is just veer a little bit to the right to steer around it. I knew it wasn't going to be a problem. And I knew if I did hit it, what the risks probably were to the vehicle if I did strike it. That is just my brain working in milliseconds while I'm I'm flying down the highway at 60 miles an hour. Is the eyes on the vehicle, if you will, the sensors and and the and the brain inside the vehicle able to process that kind of information? Maybe the trickiest part of, of developing autonomy, making it as fast as what a human can do. I think and actually faster in reality because you don't have the uh, the backup as a human. So. I think I would say maybe breaking into two sections pretty easily where the, the difficulty comes. I mean, the first piece is just the vehicle needs to operate in a predetermined route. So we need to really make sure that the vehicle stays on track and having numerous layers of redundancy to make sure that the vehicle follows the route that we tell it to. So we, we can't have any kind of deviations from what the route is because that creates more complexity. We, we pre-plan a route knowing where the intersections are, knowing where um, the, the car might be parked. So we, we need to have that part. So that's probably the first trick and autonomy, and then the second one is clearly what you, you what you've mentioned is is making decisions on obstacles, and and that's really dependent on the speeds. And so part of us at a sub twelve mile an hour vehicle, we can make decisions. Um, we have a little bit more time to make decisions than if we were traveling at 
60 miles an hour. So having enough redundancy in our obstacle detection is also the second trick and making sure you have enough computing power and you have enough um, sensors getting enough of the area and maybe even doubling the, the sensors on seeing what you can see, see, seeing the same place twice just to make sure you have some additional uh, backup plan. So uh, the vehicle does have to have numerous layers of redundancy to try to be equivalent to a human. So that's all applied to the vehicle that you currently have, but what about the future of vehicles that might be driving on a regular roadway or on a highway where there, or, or is it a system where every road is basically pre-programmed where I get into the car and I say, I want to go from home to work and it already knows that pre-programmed route. It's, it's the latter. I mean, our, our goal is to always be in the pre-programmed area. Uh, and highway is not in our roadmap, but even public roads, that, that would be what you'd have. You'd have numerous different routes within your up, where directions that you could go that the vehicle would know to, to go. But, but also, it's a bit, even more bit broader. I mean, we, once we've mapped an entire area, say, let's call it three square miles, we can create stations within that three-mile map instantly. So you don't, even if the vehicle hasn't gone to a certain permutation of A to B, or A to C or B to D, we can program that instantly uh, as long as the area has been pre-mapped. And mapping technology is getting better all the time. And so I mean, it's likely in the next couple of years, those maps are going to just be available just like Google Maps to be able to install your AV on. So that's definitely a technology that's being um, developed globally. Will that be the same when <laughs> we see vehicles not like yours currently right now where i just buy a car and i it's a fully autonomous car let's say in 50 years and it's not going to have to have a pre-programmed route i could just say i want to go to the grocery store and i want to go to now i want to go down to home depot or or whatever right i think it's unclear on if level five will ever be achieved uh i think that's what you're looking at but i think what you'll see is more of that let's say your city here in denver the entire city is mapped and so you can pick two points in denver and the vehicle will know how to get there uh, on the vehicle. So it'll be, it'll look like it's basically knowing where it's going anywhere, anytime, but it, in reality, it'll have been pre-programmed. Um, it's also a good question about whether or not you're actually going to own AVs. That's a whole different discussion on business models and, and how they're going to be launched. Uh, but Okay. Well, yeah, because I want to actually ask you about that a little bit uh, yeah. later. My guest is Sherrod Argawal, Senior Vice President for North America uh, for the company Easy Mile. When I, when I was looking at it, that Easy 10... <laughs> Uh, it struck me. I was thinking, what does this really look like? Uh, I think it looks like a large toaster. Uh, it, I don't want to be insulting, but it does. I think that's almost the best way to describe it because you, you can't really tell if it's going forward or backward, where the front or the back is. It, it, there's no really distinctive front or back there that I could tell. Uh, can can you did did uh, any aerodynamics come into play with this vehicle? I think that since we're uh, not having visuals, maybe that your description is quite good as far as if people are trying to imagine what it looks like. Uh, I, I think they're, part of the functionality was the interior is to be able to have room for standing. Uh, it's kind of a lot more open air. It's, it's not cramped because it's a small vehicle. You, have, you feel a bit more open. So I think having that additional space interior leaves you kind of few designs <laughs> in reality to have that kind of space. I mean, in reality, it's like a transit bus is more or less just a huge toaster too, but it just looks a lot more. <laughs> a lot longer, yeah. It's a lot longer. So you could make these really into any shape you want, though. You could almost make it more uh, open space with with a few seats on the side, and then open <clears throat> almost like a subway. I mean, you can maybe do. Do you really have to worry about the aerodynamics? You could make it almost in any shape. I think we have taken a different approach uh, after development of the Easy 10 here in the U.S. I think we believe that the best approach is actually to use existing, in the future, is to use existing vehicle types. So let the manufacturers focus on the right aerodynamics and the right functionality, just like we're working with um, the Phoenix Motor Cars and StarCraft. And it's built on a Ford chassis. So leaving that piece to them and automating their existing is a better road forward. Uh, it reduces the number of complex items that we have to change. So I think we're we're really actually a bit more focused on using existing vehicle types uh, than actually designing new ones uh, for okay. our autonomy. Yeah, because it it doesn't if you're going 12 or maybe even 25 or 30 miles an hour in a downtown area, aerodynamics really isn't that big of a deal <laughs> because you're not going that fast. But if you're going 65 <clears throat> or 70 down an interstate, it it does come into play. Yes, and also I mean now that they're electric. I think there's a difference in consumption. Like if you think about like uh, platooning or drifting, drafting, I mean, you don't have much of the benefits as you would in a gas vehicle from some of the aerodynamic if there's additional drag. So um, it's even less important. 
yeah, my electric and, vehicles. And, and you could almost make them in any shape if you're also driving at a slower speed, like the uh, EZ10, because in a, in a regular, <laughs> let's say any other car, they are designed for you to sit and all the people to sit facing in a forward direction. But you don't really have to have that. It could almost be like everybody sitting around in an RV, except for the driver, where you don't even have to have the driver there, where you could be sitting around a, a table, if you will. Yeah, that, that's theoretically right. I mean, we just have to look back at some of the safety standards that exist today on regular cars that still apply for AVs. But ultimately, that that's definitely the case because you wouldn't have the um, you wouldn't have the need before facing all the time. Now, you were testing this vehicle out there uh, at near the Denver International Airport for a while. And I think it's one thing to have these drive on a closed track. It's a lot easier to pre-program. You're not really having a lot of conflict with people. And when you have a scenario where you're driving these things on public roads or even around a college campus like over at the School of Mines, how does an autonomous vehicle like this handle unpredictable human behavior, whether it's somebody that can jump in front of the vehicle or somebody who's driving who might cut in front of it? The, the default with the technology is to always stop. I think that's the right decision at this point is that if the, someone does jump in front of a vehicle, the vehicle is programmed to make a quick decision to stop the vehicle and then reassess. Um, I think that's the same. In, uh, one of the things that we do and one of the reasons that mines is such an ideal place to work together on is that the, the speed limits are 25 to 30 miles an hour. So the speed delta between our vehicle is not significant, especially when you're going up the side roads. So we are able to minim, minimize those types of really harsh interactions, but uh, ultimately the vehicle is programmed to stop and then reassess what to do next when those types of things happen. I'm speaking with Sherrod Argawal. He's a senior vice president, North America for Easy Mile. I, I, was, I presume that you've tested that kind of technology where maybe you've sent one of your um, workers, maybe probably not yourself. Maybe you say, hey, let's get that guy. Let's get uh, <laughs> Joe over there to go jump and throw up front of the uh, front of the EZ10 and see if it stops. Well, I guess I got a, I got a job for you, Jason. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at I'm good at being a crash test dummy. We, we've had a number of I mean, we've had. Uh, just by default of people jumping in front of it. But we've done a number of tests with crash test dummies uh, that gets us an idea of where the right uh, deceleration needs to be to stop at the right distances. And there's also a bit of a, I mean, here we're, with, with our vehicles here, we seat belted. So we have a little bit more flexibility as far as how fast we stop. But in general, the vehicle was assigned to have standing passengers. And so you have to manage the speed of slowing down versus the, the intensity inside the cabin when you brake. Uh, that's always going to be the case with public transit because you're going to have standing passengers. It's a little bit different in cars where you can, you can stop very, very quickly because everybody's uh, belted down speed facing forward. Right. And when you have a bus driver on a bus, they typically will, I mean, because they're human, they, they know what it's like. They, they have that, that sensation that in just natural sensation, they know what it feels like when they're slowing down or they have to slam on the brakes and, and they might not just hit the brake 100%. They're going to maybe go at uh, a 75%, bring it back, then brake some more depending on the emergency situation, just because it feels better. D does, does the autonomy, does the computer inside what the EZ10 or maybe in future autonomous vehicles, would they be able to have that same sensation? Yeah, so that's that's correct. Actually, the the vehicles are looking forward a long distance than the limitation of the lidar. So we're always making decisions from as far out as the vehicle can see. So if you're crossing a hundred feet in front of the vehicle, it most likely won't make any change in behavior. But as you get closer, 30, 20, 10 feet, the vehicle will have to change its behavior. And if it's enough room to stop at a slow speed, then it will, or just to slow down. Uh, but if you jump in within three, four feet, then it's going to have to make a decision much quicker. So it is. It is similar to a human decision-making process where it's viewing the external um, environment ahead of them and making decisions as needed. Because if I j drive in any kind of a jerky way where I, I maybe take a turn a little bit too fast or, or try to <laughs> hit the brakes a little bit too hard, my wife just looks at me. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really, there's no one to look at when you're in a vehicle that has no driver. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's, that's right. Uh, there have been many studies asking people if they would feel comfortable riding in an autonomous vehicle. Most people at this point still say no. Is that a factor, do you think, of 
people never riding in one or having very limited access to one or only hearing about the mishaps from self-driving Teslas? If you compare it to, if you think about getting into a highway in a vehicle going 60 miles an hour, I can see there's going to be a lot of trepidation in riding in them. Uh, from our perspective, we're focusing on a public transit speed, an airport speed, um, air, things on corporate campuses where you're going at a fairly slow speed. Even a lot of people are used to driving, riding on a train at DIA where there's no driver. That's really the target where we believe that that uh, will have a lot more adoption a lot faster. And we've had very good success with people riding our shuttle in general when they see that it's more of a controlled, they know where it's going, it's not making uh, crazy decisions about cutting cars off. I think people get a lot more comfortable after a while. And our goal is to make it as boring a ride as possible for people so they don't uh, have to think about it. Yeah, I don't think people really think about anybody not driving the vehicle. My, my kids always ask, is there somebody driving this uh, train that goes between the concourses over there at the airport? And I say, no, it's not. It's just pre-programmed and, and doing its thing. And, uh, yeah. and And they seem to be okay with it. I think that the big evolution in, in autonomy in the last five to six years is that it, autonomous vehicles driving on guide rails or in kind of closed environments has been around for a long time. It's the, when the, the kind of the adoption of now being able to go in a free flowing and virtual rail, that's where things have really changed. And I think that uh, if we kind of use the same concept of just re- using the same use cases of where rails were and making virtual rails, that's a very good place to start because uh, people are just used to it. I mean, if we were to replace the DIA train with 50 or 60 autonomous buses doing the same thing, I don't think anybody would, would notice the that there's nobody driving them. It would be a pretty easy adoption. Sherrod Argawal, Senior Vice President, North America for the company Easy Mile. As we talk about, let's say, the future of autonomous technology, not necessarily these exact shuttle buses or shuttle buses like this, when we go into an autonomous world in, in sometime in the future, how do you think autonomous vehicles will handle situations where there are uh, there are two vehicles, both autonomous, we're on a country road somewhere, uh, it maybe, let's say it's a little bit icy, one vehicle starts to skid, uh, and, and, and it looks like they're probably going to crash into each other. Can, it, can a computer in that vehicle react in a way that will help prevent damage or injury, or, or do you think that it would just pause because it doesn't know how to handle a kind of a situation like that that it's never been in. That's an that's a good question. It's an interesting scenario. I think ideally the vehicles are programmed that when they they detect something like an icy road, they make a much different. They take the approach much differently. Whereas maybe what you or I would drive a bit faster on it, it would drive very very slow to kind of prevent it from skidding. Um, I think the the weather aspect of autonomy is probably still the uh the future uh you can just like we, we, we like testing in colorado because we have a lot of sunny days here most of the av companies in the u.s are testing in places like arizona and san francisco so i think reaction to weather and instances like that is still a little bit down the road on how to approach those types of scenarios because rain and definitely snow especially those th- those thick snowstorms that we get here in the spring that could just pop up out of, out of anywhere. You could be driving your autonomous vehicle or you could even be in that your shuttle bus uh, and it looks great and sunny and then 15 minutes later, it's pouring down snow. So how does a, a autonomous vehicle with that has to rely on sensors and, and less on feel like we can as a human where you're just, you have the windshield wipers going 100 miles an hour, but you can kind of see things and, and you can at least... Uh, guess where you're going and 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 hope for the best uh, a computer i don't think has that same reason the key the key thing is filtering um the vehicle is very uh, adept at identifying objects um, and the, the problem is is that the raindrop is an object in reality from the sensor perspective so for us it's it's continuing to increase the filtering algorithms to be able to determine the differences where the vehicle would say okay that's a raindrop i'm going to keep moving but if i see a car i'm going to still stop and so I think that's where the, 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 the probably some of the uh, development is still coming, and that's pretty much in the industry wide. That net still needs to be there. Um, but there are some solutions. I mean, in, internally, I mean, as remote driving is becoming more and more, uh, of, I mean, getting more and more mature, this could be a possibility where you might have a from our use cases where we're doing fixed routes, you could have a remote driver come in from a supervisor center to move that vehicle back to position. Um, so there's some options that could be maybe looked at in the interim, but definitely that, that weather is a is a roadmap item that hasn't fully been addressed by really anybody yet. Yeah, and I was reading a story. I think this was 
maybe a year and a half, maybe two years ago, where there were some tests going on. I think maybe it was in the Pittsburgh area because they're doing a lot of testing of autonomy up that way. And there was a uh, test of a vehicle, and there were a, a bunch of birds that were scared by something and then flew right in front of the vehicle and couldn't identify that it was birds, and so it just slammed on the brakes and stopped. Um, so it, it all these crazy, unique scenarios that you and I as a human would be able to just, oh, yeah, those, those are some birds. It's okay. I'm just going to keep going. Um, the vehicle doesn't understand that. And then as, as I'm just thinking about this, one thing that I've always taught my girls is when they start driving is even though you don't want to hit that squirrel or hit that deer or hit the whatever, it's better for you as a person in a vehicle is to hit it and not try to swerve because more people are hurt or killed even in crashes when they try to swerve away and avoid an animal. Yeah, that's good feedback. I think that's probably true. That's probably true. So as a, is, is our computers just going to have to take some time to learn those behaviors and, and that stuff? I mean, I wouldn't think a computer would want to just plow into a deer, but it, it's, it's better for you as a passenger for that to happen. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that there some of those kind of 1% scenarios, that's where the gap is and trying to, you could, and I think I've seen this from some of the very companies that have publicly said that the 99.5% of autonomy is, is doable. It's that last half percent. The scenarios like you're talking about are, are the ones that are the real challenges to finalize. Um, we look at it from in our our direction is that we're trying to minimize that 0.5% by in the environments that we're in and the ODDs that we're in. Um, and so I think that's part of it. And the speed is another one. I mean, when you're traveling at 12 miles an hour versus 50, your reaction times are very different. And it's not even likely a deer could get in front of you at that speed. Yeah, <laughs> so right. I think we'll have plenty of time to make those decisions and i think that's where the, the the autonomy will work i mean you're gonna you're gonna see companies like ours with this lower speed keep continue to have more and more driverless and then companies that are going at higher speeds are gonna you know, they're, they're gonna have, keep 35 40 miles an hour and that's they're gonna keep working on increasing speed as the technology gets better because in in a in a fully autonomous world in a, in a panacea of autonomy you have vehicles that are able to talk to each other talk to the traffic lights um, and, and you it, it not be able to, you don't, you wouldn't even have to stop at a traffic light because as my vehicle is talking to that one and talking to that one, that's coming even on the crossways, they can figure out the right speed they're supposed to be going. So you don't even have to stop at a traffic light. They can just keep going one. If you take the humans out of the mix and let the computers figure it all out for you, you could actually have traffic flowing a lot better and, and a lot smoother. The same thing with, um, with driving on an interstate, when you have uh, max capacity, you could still do that, have max capacity on an interstate at 100 miles an hour, as long as you take people out of the mix where you don't have somebody who's skittish and, and, and just hits the brakes or sees the sunshine so they freak out because they can't see a little bit, so they slow down, or people are entering the highway and they're breaking that gap between the cars. So, I, I mean, it seems like that is the panacea for autonomous driving almost taking humans completely out of the mix so it could just be the computers talking to each other yeah agreed i mean autonomy in a fully autonomous world is ready more or less now i mean the reliability of the technology is good enough that if you were to put in a, a three square mile area where only autonomous vehicles were operating in no pedestrians and human cars i, I think you would have you'd be able to achieve that at this point so uh, it is the complexity of the human brain and the human decision making that that makes things harder for us to to get to full autonomy. So, do do we just have to take humans out of the mix? Then is that is it eventually going to be? Uh, we have to take. You can't have your uh, classic nineteen seventy five Cadillac Eldorado because it, it's a human that's driving it, and you got to take them out of the mix. I think it's likely that you're going to see those kind of scenarios in the dense urban environments. I think getting out to the larger rural and suburban areas would probably be a bit longer. For that but ultimately uh i mean it's kind of like a convergence is that the technology will continue to get better and better over time so i mean ultimately i'm sure the classic cars will still have a place in the road but uh, ultimately for the quicker adoption a fully autonomous uh, region would would be a lot quicker to get to the goal my guest is sherrod argawal senior vice president of north america for the company easy mile we're the we talk a lot about infrastructure and how much money is going to be spent on infrastructure by the federal government here very soon. And we talk about how these vehicles need to have 
uh, a good map of where they're going to go. And I would imagine that the roads in those areas have to be able to handle those vehicles or the vehicles would, would need to have well-maintained uh, roads, good curbs, uh, smooth surfaces, and not have a lot of potholes, that sort of thing. So is that a challenge to have road infrastructure not up to par when you're trying to program and drive these autonomous vehicles? Yeah, there's definitely some some uh, areas there that cause some problems for us. I mean, even for us, like having uh, additional overgrowth trees and things like that can be a bit of an issue. Um, but I think in general, we can filter out even things like hills. We're able to filter properly on, on the vehicle, understanding that the, in front of them is not a, an object and it's a hill. So I think we can manage most of those uh, challenges right now. And the vehicle is programmed an exact route. So if there's a pothole, we could plan around it for the most part. But as they grow, we would have to reprogram where we're going. There's definitely opportunities, though, to improve the infrastructure to make autonomous better. I mean, you talked about stoplights. That's definitely one area where we could have connected stoplights that could be making huge decisions. I mean, we are somewhat limited to the decision-making power of the vehicle. So if we had uh, an intersection equipped with tons of sensors and beacons that were giving, that were constantly telling information to all road users and the AV, that would definitely support uh, an acceleration of the technology or just any intersection in, in, in reality or even other types of detail coming from the roads, those could help accelerate the technology. So I think in both ways, you could really invest in tech in the infrastructure, the, um, new infrastructure to make it better, um, just as not just keeping the existing roads fully paved and, and clean. Because that, and that takes money. There, there's already some intersections around Colorado and in other cities that already will talk to certain cars. I know there's an Audi that has the ability to have communication with certain intersections, traffic lights, and the traffic light will tell the car and then show a display in the car how long that traffic light is going to stay red or when it's going to turn to green. So the driver, if they're just in self-driving mode, in, in regular you know person driving mode, they could either slow down, adjust their speed so they could roll up to there and even not have to stop because they know when that traffic light is going to turn green and it helps with their fuel efficiency. It helps with their braking. They don't have to stop. Um, and it keeps traffic maybe moving a little bit better if you know when that traffic light's going to turn. Yeah. And I think the whole concept of CAV, connected autonomous, connected and or autonomous vehicles is, is a big part of that. And you can put in those types of units into cars today and have that type of decision making made for you. So I, I think that's a, a great step forward. And I know CDOT has invested a lot in, in looking at that option because um, the more data we can get out of the intersections and communicate back to cars, it is going to be better for safely, better for safety on our roads. Is there any chance that the computer inside of the autonomous vehicle, whether it's yours or others in the future, uh, go crazy? Uh, start <laughs> weaving into oncoming traffic. Uh, maybe just doesn't take that turn and look out, look out mountain and starts tumbling down the mountain. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot of experience on AI. Uh, we do very little AI on our technology, so I think it's it's more of a system that's programmed. I, I don't think that's a real feasibility in what we're trying to do. Um, maybe we'll get to a point where there's that's required to, to get over that 0.5% hump, but as of today, I, I don't see that happening with the way the technology is designed. Because we talk about you know, all this hacking and uh, computers being infected with malware. It's pretty easy these days for somebody to send you a computer uh, program on your in your email or, or through your phone. And people are, are, are unfortunately getting hacked and, and getting into malware. Uh, should we be worried about these vehicles in the future because they're going to be so computer uh, heavy being infected with some kind of malware? Well, some kind of a ransomware even that will only let it drive again. If you pay somebody <laughs> overseas, $700 in Bitcoin. Uh, I think they make a very good movie. Um, I, think, <laughs> uh, I think the, I think the likelihood in the way that we've designed our technology is that the vehicle has uh, just a very much a default to disarm or disable if that happens. And so in default, there's two things that we've tried. I think it's similar on the industry is that if you are able to hack into the vehicle, um, we do everything on vehicle. So if you're in the vehicle, there's not a lot you can do because the vehicle just won't move. If anything is out of order, it just won't move. Um, and then the other piece is, is that the, the system is disabled to be, if you are able to override it, the maximum speed is very slow in manual mode. So we've kind of looked at it in the perspective of, okay, let's assume it is 
inter infiltrated, like let's minimize the damage they could potentially do within it. So the vehicle is programmed, our vehicles are programmed to go to the nearest station and stop if there's anything wrong um, that this detected that's wrong. And then if they are able to get control, the speeds are limited to be so low that you could run and catch the vehicle <laughs> and, and, and stop it. A la James Bond, Bond style, right? <laughs> yeah, you can jump, you can jump on the back of it and slow it down. So I think that would be all right. Yeah, uh, yeah I think that would, be, that would be a pretty good movie, I think. Uh, and I think the estimate is we talk about, we, we talked about this just a little bit ago, is that the estimate is that we use our cars about 3% of the time, the rest of the time, the 97% of the time that we have our cars, they're, they're parked in our garage or at work or just, they're just parked. They're not doing anything. Do you see a time where we only have autonomous vehicles, rideshare vehicles uh, that are driving us to and from places and we don't actually own a vehicle our own, our, ourselves? I think that is the, for us, for us in the industry, that's definitely the goal. I think that seems to make the most sense. I mean, right now the cost of technology is so high that it's not really feasible for individual cars. And that'll obviously come down into the future, but it doesn't make any sense in reality to have the same 3% use on an autonomous car uh, when it could be easily dispatched to somebody else to be used uh, for the same purpose. So I, I think it's likely that that's the, the scenario. Definitely in the urban environments, you'll most likely see that. I think some of the visions of the progressive cities is to have the trains bringing people in from the suburbs and then only autonomous vehicles inside the cities to move people around. So if you live within the city or commute in, you'll, you'll move by autonomous car. I think the, the rural questions are still out there, but I think the, the majority of the dense populations will see that as a very likely um, plan for autonomy. I'm speaking to Sherrod Argawal. He's a senior vice president, North America for the company Easy Mile. I've I've said that here as well uh, that uh, it seems that eventually the downtown urban core, whether it's here or Nashville or New York City, wherever, they are all going to eventually be people less, well at least vehicle less. Uh, that people are driving vehicles. They're just it's just not going to happen. Where it's going to be biking and walking and maybe autonomous vehicles in those core areas, and they would first start doing that by eliminating parking. So if you don't have anywhere to park, uh, then you aren't going to be able to go into those places. They'll have parking areas outside of the core where you could drive or take a train into, and that's where you will be staged, and then you will be inside the core in this autonomous world, if you will. But not everybody wants to live that way. Is that, though, the future that you could see happening? I think so. I mean, there's such there's so many benefits from AV from just a, a safety perspective and a you know, change of life, a work lifestyle improvement and, and cost for the for a uh, for a ownership perspective. I, I think that there's the benefits are going to outweigh some of the detractors. And so we will probably end up there. And I think that you also have enough support. Governments have been globally are very supportive of the technology. You have the biggest companies in the world working on it. I, I just don't see it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. I think there's just too much impetus behind it in dollars and government support that, and, and the benefits are quite high. Speaking of dollars, who's going to pay for it? Is this going to be uh, where I'm going to have to have a, uh, like a, I do a bus pass right now, or am I going to pay like I do if I just jump into an Uber or a Lyft? How, how is all this going to be paid for, both the, the infrastructure, the technology, the vehicles? How, how would all that be paid for? I think ultimately the the idea of autonomy is that it, that that the you have a now you have a profitable business model. So you would definitely, as a consumer, will be part of that revenue in creating your ticketing, whether it's on a a global here's your transportation pass for all modes or a single pass to RTDs. That's obviously a question mark, but in reality, um, the consumer is going to be probably the one bearing the most of the cost of technology because it'll be a profitable venture for the different companies. I would say infrastructure will be something that would be coming from the cities. Uh, there's a benefit to them to having AVs on there, especially from a safety perspective. So I think it's likely that infrastructure will continue to be supported from the, the government. But you could easily see this being another opportunity for private-public partnerships on the infrastructure and the mobility that you could have almost say, here's a three-mile uh, part of Denver that we want this private company to develop and put in all the infrastructure for AVs, put in all the electric grids for AVs to, for the extra charging, and then bring in the system. I think that's a fairly likely scenario because uh, there's a, it's a profitable business model. 
So it could not, it could be just not only into a, a densely populated urban area that's already in place. It could be for new developments that have people driving around in there and have these EVs just rolling around um, a, a new development area that, that has, that, that you would see in any suburban um, city. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think that you can reduce. I mean, there's a benefit to reducing car ownership not only for the for the for the um, the homeowner, but also for the developer. I mean, if they can take off driveways and and part in garages and create those into houses, there's a huge opportunity. So I think if to to invest in a mobility system in developments to reduce parking garage space and reduce is a is a automatic um, return for the developer and more tax money for the city. So I, you know, coming back to the benefits for all, I think that's another piece that could be really interesting right now we hear about and and some of our favorite commercials are from geico so (laughs) (laughs) insurance will obviously have to change since i don't own a vehicle then i won't have the uh burden of insurance if i don't own it so who will have the burden of insurance and if i'm driving in a self-driving vehicle let's say even yours who is responsible when i get into that vehicle uh, to pay for any uh, injuries or or problems if we get into a wreck. Well, the risk risk management is definitely one of the goals of our project with the mines. Uh, there's a lot of it's a very open question on if you, you could break it apart as an example. Is okay, you have a vehicle that's built by uh, a major OEM with a technology provider. There's so there's two people right there that are involved in the vehicle that could potentially be at risk. Um, you have the potential for an operator if there's a company managing the services like a ride sharing company that could potentially be there you have a city that's allowing the vehicle to be on there so assumingly they've, they've made the decision to allow the vehicles on the road there's potentially an infrastructure uh, uh developer that put in a stoplight that maybe failed that caused the accident i mean there's all kinds of areas and that's a, that's probably one of the biggest might be one of the biggest blockers to getting these vehicles on the road quickly um I think having some of these bigger companies than even the government are supporting it, I think those discussions will happen pretty quickly and uh, ultimately that'll get worked out. But there's, it's definitely very different than you knowing who's at fault in an accident like it is today. And what's going to happen to our, our favorite TV lawyer, Frank Azar, who is the strong arm, who's always talking about, here's my wreck, where's my check? Well, I feel like he's going to have a lot more parties to go after. <laughs> so it might be very good for his business, actually, because there's going to be a whole lot of different people to identify who's at fault. So, I'm joined by Sherrod Argowal, Senior Vice President, North America for the company Easy Mile. Is that going to have to come through some sort of legislation? Is Congress going to get have to get involved and, and sort out who is going to bear this responsibility? Today, I think where the regulations is going to bear, it's going to be on the state level. That's how AV has been at most recently. I mean, the federal government has provided some guidelines, and but ultimately, if the vehicle complies with U.S. safety standards, then regulation on autonomy has been left to the states. So I would say it's going to be more at that level for them, each state to individually determine what their permitting process is going to be and, and regulation. And then, I mean, there's going to, you, you require insurance to get your plates. So Assumingly, there's going to have to, it's going to have to be worked out by the Department of Revenue and DMV and, and the DOT on how that how how plates are going to be on and whose risk is going to be there. So that's 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 where I see it. And, and you are uh, vice president of North America for Easy Mile. It is Easy Mile has a large presence in Europe. What is the differences between what Easy Mile is doing in Europe compared to maybe the United States? Our, our main target here is to really get the the FMVSS compliant uh, road ready uh, passenger mover onto the onto the road. So our target has really been on that for the next year and a half is to to get in 2023 that vehicle running. Uh, the European market's been a little different. I think they have a lot more. I mean, that you have 20, 30, 23 countries. Uh, each country is still in some of the demonstration side and still understanding the technology where. I think with with AVs in the U.S., you have a number of companies that are at the point of actually delivering fully autonomous vehicles, so we're a little further ahead in that concept. Um, so that they, our, our approach here is to get a commercial product, uh, a U.S. commercial product on the road. And in Europe, we're doing a bit of both, where we're, we're growing the uh, the current EZ10 product, as well as looking at other platforms across num- numerous different countries in yeah. Europe. And where and where are we going to see these next? You said we're going to have them here in Colorado, but are you are you looking at other cities in the United States to start exploring doing this uh, autonomy and uh, these new um, 
autonomous shuttle buses? So we have a number of projects over the last couple of years and still ongoing in, in numerous cities across the country with our EZ10. Uh, our goal, I think, in the next year is to, to continue with those projects and to grow the one here in Colorado. And, and then 2023, we're primarily looking for one major site to launch the first round of our vehicles. And then really 2024, looking at partners all over the country. So a little bit of a, a couple of years out, but just making sure that everything is, is ready. But you're probably going to release the EZ20 uh, at that point, right? And where it's going to have all kinds of cool, fancy new features. Yeah, we're calling it the Easy Zeus. We're calling it the Easy <laughs> Zeus, which is a 23-passenger vehicle. Uh, and, and actually, um, it's, a little, it's kind of a bit of the opposite. It's going to be more your traditional vehicle with what you're used to, more than seeing kind of a futuristic vehicle. I think kind of my earlier discussion is that I think we feel much more comfortable with an, a vehicle that's run millions of miles. It's certified. It's comfortable with passengers and and cities and operators. So it's actually going to be probably more going back to a traditional, it is going back to more of a traditional look and, and features than more advanced. I think that when you combine too, too many new things at once, it's not quite as successful as if you take a couple of the, the true tried, uh, really well, well-worn products and, and automate them. Like, like what Apple has done with our uh, constant updates on the iPhone, where they, they put an update out there and it's not quite ready for prime time. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think even even our the rest of the industry is, is kind of pivoted to that. You've seen well, Waymo being a great example where they initially had that that bubble car and then they, they shifted back to a to a Chrysler and I think that's a we think that's the right approach. Um, kind of let let the manufacturers do the manufacturing and let us focus on our driverless technology. And, well, and finally, and I think this might be be totally off base a bit uh, or at least off off track of what we're talking about maybe. But at, at the track and field events, I don't know if you saw watch this at the Olympics. But one of my, my favorite events to watch is is like the discus and, and the uh, javelin and, and the hammer throw, the shot put, all those kind of things. And they have these at the Olympics in Tokyo. They had these little autonomous vehicles that would go drive out there to where the they threw the, let's say, the javelin or the hammer. And somebody who went out there to measure how far it went would pick it up and put it on this little autonomous truck thing that was pretty cool looking. And then it would then drive all the way back and then bring it back to the athlete. So so we're looking at autonomy, not just to help us out and get us from place to place. And maybe it can just bring stuff to us. Yeah, I think the use cases are numerous. And those short distance, low speed concepts are really a good one. Um, the technology is still a bit expensive to make that work, but... I mean, ultimately, those are the great, the last mile, first mile in deliveries is a huge opportunity for autonomy. And you kind of have this vision of where uh, the, the, the practice truck pulls up in the corner and then like 10 robots get dispatched into the neighborhood and drop off all the packages and then come right back. I mean, that's, it's kind of the, the vision and it's not, it's not really that, that uh, out there. I mean, that technology exists. It's just, it's not really commercially, it's not, the cost is too high to make 10 robots that, that would even make any sense at this point, but yeah, that's a, definitely the, the technology is, is getting faster and better that there's going to be tons of use cases. I was watching, the, we had a, a news story on our morning show this morning uh, showing these robots that look like people, basically, with the legs that are jumping up and down, and they were doing backflips, and they were moving, they were running around. It, it, it looked like iRobot, and I was freaked out. And I could just imagine that we're going to have autonomous vehicles carrying these uh, robots, and then somebody's going to program them and give them a knife, and then we're all in big trouble. Yeah, that's always the fear, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, hopefully, that you can have they have an auto shutdown, or they have the safety. Uh, what's they have the uh, the, the safety word <laughs> they, they, <laughs> that, that, shut, that shuts them down whenever you need to. Rumple still skid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time and all your expertise. I really appreciate um, uh, talking to you about autonomy. It's interesting to me, and I think the uh, technology is just uh, really we're at its infancy, basically, and it can only go up from here. Agreed. Yeah, it's definitely in the early stages, but you've seen some pretty good successes already with it. So it's it's a very it's a definite that it'll it'll happen. So welcome to have you back out to Golden anytime and ride the shuttles as we keep continue to ramp it up. Definitely, Sherrod Agarwal, Senior Vice President North America for the company Easy Mile. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. If you wanted to see what these things really look like, it might be best just to do a Google search. Uh, search School of Mines Autonomous Shuttles, and it, a picture of them will probably just pop right up. But again, I stand by my comment, large toaster. <laughs> it looks like a large toaster without the bread coming out of the top. 
Uh, Maybe that's the best description of how they look. If you have a better description of how they look, uh, you can either call the uh, listener hotline, 303-832-0217, or uh, send me a note on any of the contact links. Uh, It it is interesting. I wish these things went faster, but for now, they're going to go slow. I think while they're kind of testing it out and and getting their feet wet with it, uh, and that you didn't have to wear a seatbelt while you're going 12 miles an hour. But that I'm sure will change in the future. I could, I could really see these things being more effective if they were longer and you could just jump on and off with fewer seats and more standing room um, where they had more of these stops where they just go for a little bit, stop, go for a little bit, stop, and you just jump on and off as you need to go. Uh, but maybe that's the next generation. But you know, you always have to go through these first iterations of things, figure out what the bugs are, figure out how it works, uh, do some improvements, uh, and, and then there you go. And actually there was another company out there that was talking to me about, uh, it, it, it was actually an air purifying system. I, I think it was actually called, the company was called Pure, P-U-R-E. And they had this device. It looked like it was a, uh, oh, maybe as big square around as you would see as a, like a Wi-Fi router, uh, that, that you would have for a business. And it was stuck on the roof of this thing. And it apparently is good to clean the air. I, th- I think he said 200 square feet every 10 minutes. Where it, it sucks air in, it, they have this uh, disinfecting light that kills anything that might be in the air and then sends it back out. And it just recirculates the air every 200 uh, cubic feet of air every 10 minutes. And he was saying, uh, this guy, about putting these things in uh, planes and buses and, and, I mean, like in, in fairly close. So you'd have them maybe, you know, three or four feet apart. And it would be able to clean the air in, uh, in these closed cabins so another way to to keep the air clean as as you're going around in public transportation it would be great to have it in a plane i think and maybe people would feel more comfortable but who would ever think uh that you would need that sort of thing and until the whole pandemic thing happened Uh, all right anyway if you want to contact me all the contact links are right there in the description of the show thanks again for being here thanks for listening and until next time i'm jason luber the traffic guy be safe and as always happy motoring